for me, wanting to teach women how to build their skills and confidence being out in the bush, I think it's, it's empowering, not just for them, but for their community. They're told like, oh, well, it's not traditional for women to do those things. Like, then they just don't have access to that to that wild meat or wild fish and to to have the fun of being out in the bush, which I think is really unfortunate because there are so many single moms out there. If they feel empowered and if they feel like they have the skills and knowledge to do these things, they'll pass on that knowledge to their kids and we'll just be that much more stronger and healthier as a people, as a community. I think that we would have a much more like robust economy, like interesting culture. Our communities would feel more empowered and flourish like as a whole. Hey everyone, welcome to Venture Out, a podcast series from Entrepreneurth that shares the brave stories of Northerners who are inspiring innovation and community well-being through business. I'm your host, Zena Cowan. We are fires across the tundra. We are ice of a million years. Our mothers, our fathers hold us. We stand together. This feels like a really special episode because today's guest holds so much knowledge, which she shares beautifully, and I think you'll leave the conversation feeling like, wow, I just learned so much from this woman, tell me more. And as an entrepreneur, she operates a really unique business that empowers a lot of people, especially women here in the North. Angela Code is a Saisi Dene hide tanner, hunter, land-based educator, and filmmaker who owns Dene Chanye, cultural contracting. I don't want to give too much away about the business because Angela articulates it so well, but what I will say is that she is creating opportunities and spaces for Dene language and culture to thrive. And what has always stood out to me about Angela is her balance of humility and confidence. And I think this is a big superpower that she brings into her teaching and to her advocacy work around gender equality, which is not always easy. In this episode, you'll also meet another Saisi Dene powerhouse, Stephanie Thurassi, who is a close friend of Angela's and is the executive director of the Seal River Watershed. Both women are land guardians and leaders, and I think they're some of the coolest role models out there. So let's dive into the conversation. I like to introduce myself in my language first, just because one way in which like as an Indigenous person, we can kind of utilize our language in an everyday kind of way. And yeah, it just kind of sets the tone for the interview. So, Watsie, Adlanet E, Angela Code Husie, Saisi Denisothwine Hesli, Tesu Uli Twe, Tiduli Lake Manitoba Hotsi, Kwanlin, Whitehorse Yukon Nasted, Deniatie, Nezum, business, Indigenous cultural contracting, So basically, I just said, hi, uh, my name is Angela Code. I'm a member of the Saisi Denisothlini First Nation. I'm originally from a small community called Tiduli Lake. It's the most Northern community in Manitoba, but I live in Whitehorse, Yukon, and I've lived here for quite a few years. 
My parents moved my brother Mike and I here when I was 10 years old. And I've moved around since then, but yeah, so I have roots both in Northern Manitoba and, and Yukon. I said, our language, our Dene language is beautiful. You know, Dene Chania, Bonita, like I love our Dene culture and our ways of being and knowing. Nalzi Hesli means like I'm a hunter. So that's a big part of my business and a big part of like who I am. And I also mentioned that I, I work on caribou hides and moose hides, which is also a part of my business and, and teaching others how to do that. And my, my business name is Denichanie, Indigenous Cultural Contracting. And I'm really happy to be here. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your language with us, Angela. That was a beautiful introduction. And we'll talk about language throughout this interview because I know it's one of the pillars of your business and your approach to instructing because teachings are embedded in language. Um, I also know that you and your brother Mike were raised by two really strong parents. So can you tell me about them? Like, what is their story? Sure. So my, my mom is Mary Code and my dad is Alan Code. They're, they're documentary filmmakers. They also live here in Whitehorse, Yukon. And uh, they met in Churchill, Manitoba when they were probably like 19 or 20. And they come from very different backgrounds. So my mom is Saisi Dene. And, uh, you know, she was born out in the bush um, in a place called Grayling Waterfalls and close to a, a caribou crossing near Little Duck Lake, in Northern Manitoba. And she went through like a government force relocation when she was five years old, where the, the federal government decided to move our people from Little Duck Lake winter cabin area to Churchill. And it was a, a very destructive move for our people. And that was also a time period where there was a lot of child apprehension for foster care and residential schools, boarding schools. And so my mom went to school in, in Dauphin, Manitoba. And so she learned how to speak English. And when she was about 19 and 20, like she had her own radio show and uh, like her maiden name is Clipping. So the radio show was called The Mary Clipping Show. I, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure like what, what the show was about, but I think that she was like, translating the news and relaying messages like from the outside world to to Dewey Lake which had just started as a community in the early 1970s. My dad he grew up in southern Ontario and he's he's a, a white guy of like Irish descent and uh, Canadian. He always wanted to be a filmmaker and he was studying at university he studied biology and he got his teaching degree and all kinds of stuff, but he had this opportunity to film up in Churchill. And I think it was to film polar bears, but he got up there and he started hearing the story about the Saisi Dene relocation. And it really intrigued him and he wanted to find out more. So people told him, well, you know, you should talk to Mary Clipping and see what she has to say about it. And uh, my dad jokes that he's still waiting for that interview <laughs> and like, you know, and they've been together for, for decades now. And so my dad's whole life basically changed after meeting my mom because they fell in love and he ended up moving to, to Dooley Lake with my mom and uh, they built a cabin together and he learned a lot like from our people and, you know, him and my mom. They've worked together for, for so many years and they've done a lot for our community in terms of documenting like our cultural heritage and our, our history. And they really had a lot of foresight in terms of like how much video and audio recording would be beneficial for our people's years down the line. Because um, if they hadn't done the work that they had done, we would have lost a lot like just with the passing of, of elders and knowledge holders. And 
So I'm really proud of my parents and, and what they've been able to accomplish. You know, it's, it's definitely influenced me as an individual and yeah, they're, they're my greatest teachers and, and mentors. So I'm really fortunate and grateful to have them as parents. Wow. They sound amazing. And I just love hearing stories about couples who come together because of a shared purpose, like in this case, storytelling and documenting. Um, funny, my dad is a documentary filmmaker as well. He's retired. But one of the gifts of that job is getting to make a living by being curious and learning and hopefully sharing stories that have the ability to change the world. So I now have a better understanding of how you came into your filmmaking work and having the opportunity to collaborate on some projects with your parents. Um, so Angela, what was your childhood like and, and how, reflecting back, how were you raised? I was born in Churchill, Manitoba. And we moved to Tuduli Lake when I think I was two or something. And so all my, my first memories come from being in, in Tuduli. We lived in a pretty small little house, just like everybody else. And we had a wood stove for heat and we didn't have running water. When you live in a small isolated community like Tuduli, where like there's no roads and everything's fly in and you know, the grocery store, produce and everything is, is really expensive. It's necessary that people hunt and fish, you know, like you, you get your food and a lot of your sustenance from harvesting off the land yourself. And so from a young age, my dad taught me how to snare rabbits or like kill ptarmigan or, or grouse. And, you know, fishing was something that we did from very early on. Being out in the bush was just a regular part of life, like regular part of my childhood. You know, I'd go pick berries and medicines with my mom and my aunties, and it wasn't anything out of the ordinary for me. And I think um, my parents, like, they wanted me to be proud and of, of being, you know, connected to the land and, and being proud to be Dene. been a, a pretty curious person and something that my parents have always fostered is just like if I have an interest in something to pursue it check it out and you know if I enjoy learning about it or participating in it then go for it which I feel super fortunate about especially like as as a woman like I I think that culturally or like you know, socially, sometimes there's, there's certain expectations for, for girls and women to pursue certain career goals or like educational endeavors or recreation. And, you know, my parents never really put me in any type of box. Like I have two older brothers and a lot of like male, older male cousins and stuff. I just, I always wanted to do the things that they were doing. They were going out fishing, going out hunting or trapping, and I just always wanted to kind of tag along. That has kind of harnessed or shaped like my career goals or, you know, paths throughout my adult life. When I was going to high school, there wasn't a lot of education curriculum around Indigenous history or contemporary affairs or language or anything like that. And so, I was always curious to learn more about it because, you know, it's a big part of like who we are as a people, but yet it wasn't really valued or like seen as important, it seemed, from a non-Indigenous kind of schools. So when I went to university, I studied First Nation studies as a major and um, First Nation languages and linguistics as a minor. And that really broadened the scope of what I thought was possible in terms of resources for learning about Indigenous politics and history and, you know, movements and, and all these things. And 
So going to university was really amazing for me because like it just exposed me to so many different uh, learning resources and going to, to places like Dechinta was also really great because, you know, there I was learning more than just like the academics of, of Indigenous studies. It was like really land-based skills, you know, so we would be learning about decolonization and like Indigenous sovereignty, self-determination, but also learning how to tan moose hides or, you know, set a fishnet or something. So it was like, that was the first time that I saw like indigenous knowledge and skills really valued at an academic, like a Western academic standard where we can get credits and stuff for that. And, you know, like that was also like a big, big thing for me because it kind of helped me think a bit more broadly and in terms of like what it is I can do for my career. So yeah, like there's all these different different stepping stones, I think, that have come my way that have really helped me in my direction in life. Yeah, that reminds me of Joella Hogan's interview. She was the first guest on this season of the podcast, and she also talked about having parents who really encouraged her to spread her wings and try lots of things and seek out education on the land and in post-secondary classrooms. And then there are institutes like Dechinta that bring those two worlds together and it's a gift because then you get to see how different pathways and skill sets and threads of knowledge can be woven together. And that's a holistic perspective that we recognize in many of the entrepreneurs we work with. So, Ange, I want to talk about your business, Dene Chanier, because I remember you talking about it when you participated in one of Entrepreneur's business ideation workshops a, a couple of years ago. And then one day you launched publicly and you had this Facebook page for the business. So tell me how you landed on Dene Chanier Cultural Contracting. Yeah, um, well, I think that, you know, having like indigenous knowledge and skill out in the bush, out on the land is, is something that, you know, I didn't really realize, but is kind of unique in, in Canada. And there are quite a few hunters out there and, you know, people who, who go out in the land and stuff like that. But what was kind of missing, I found, and the information that was out there was like more of like the indigenous philosophies behind land stewardship and and harvesting animals and and just being being out there like in a good way in a respectful way and so I had had some talks with Jim Welsh from Environment Yukon and I had taken one of his courses before like the hunting education and ethics development course that Environment puts on. And it's a it's a mandatory course like for all people wanting to to get their Yukon big game hunting licenses, and uh, we just started having conversations about about me becoming a an instructor. I was totally on board. I was like, yeah, that would be sweet. I'd love to get paid to talk about hunting and you know help help people build their confidence and and skills like out on the land and make sure that you know, animals are respected and that they're harvested ethically and people practice like their, their shooting and they have good shot placement and, you know, they know how to field dress properly and there's no meat that's wasted. And, and I also said like, you know, I can, I can add a little more indigenous knowledge to these courses, like some of our oral histories about human relationships with caribou, for instance, and um, where some of our, our morals and our ethics come from. Non-Indigenous settlers coming to Canada, European settlers have come and like they've had a great influence on Indigenous cultures and, you know, almost every aspect of, of who we are as a people, how we live, you know, and a lot of that has been forcible through land dispossession, Indian residential schools, and just like the 
the dominant culture within our Canadian society. However, Indigenous peoples have also influenced settlers in Canada in a lot of ways. And for sure, in, in our ways of thinking in terms of like environmental stewardship, like I think a lot of like the ideologies around environmentalism in Canada stems from Indigenous concepts. And so part of my business is just like paying respect to those concepts and those ideologies. And these are age-old concepts that didn't come with the introduction of Europeans to this land. These are concepts that have been around for thousands of years. And, you know, like sharing, sharing those old, old stories that predate colonization and the hunting tools that have been made and utilized for thousands of years. And, you know, like the bone fleshing tools or the caribou hoof rattle or talking about caribou fences and stuff like that. Like these are, are super old. And I think that they deserve like more respect and recognition. And so for me to facilitate hunting education and ethics development courses, like, and integrating that knowledge, I think is, is one way to kind of pay respects to our ancestors and then also to uh, develop better land stewards and people who are more vested in, in taking care of the land and animals because, you know, it's what has sustained Indigenous peoples for thousands of years and having those strong values will help us live a more sustainable and prosperous future generations down the line. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about teaching these philosophies and also the land-based skills. And I think there's a lot of potential for growth with it. I agree. I think there's so much potential for the work you're doing. And I love your intention of building a business that pays respect to those traditional concepts and ideologies behind land stewardship. And you're somebody who holds so much knowledge that you want to be sharing with others so that they can feel empowered on the land and reclaim like not just the skills, but the mindset that exists beyond colonial thought. Um, just going back to language, how did you decide to name your business Denechanie? Denechanie, it means like, uh, like our culture, like the Dene way of being. And it's kind of in reference to our like code of ethics or morals. You know, like some of the examples would be like, you know, if you're out in the bush and you utilize someone's cabin, you leave it better than how you found it. You clean up after yourself, you replace the wood that you might have burned or, you know, like you just, you have respect. You know, you don't kill an animal for nothing. Like if you're gonna kill something, like you gotta eat it and you gotta use it and use the hide and, you know, make the most out of it. And, you know, it's kind of like where the philosophy of like taking only what you need and utilizing all that you can comes from. Um, right now in the Yukon, hunters are only obligated to pack out like the meat of the animal that they harvest. They're not obligated to, to take back the, the head or the organ meats or the lower leg bones or the hide. When you look at Dene cultures prior to colonization, the caribou for the Dene is like one of the most important animals because they can provide so much for the people. The hide, using the hides for clothing, for like shelter, bed rolls, um, drums, like rattles, babiche for snowshoes. And then with the bones, like there's so many tools that you can make out of it, like the fleshing tools or awls or the sinew can be used like the backstrap sinew can be used for sewing and with the brain, you know, like it's so useful for when you're tanning hides, like there's just so many things that you can use or make out of, out of caribou. And so just taking out the meat after an har a harvest for me as like a dentist person, it just seems so wasteful. Yeah. So I think that in teaching people how to utilize more of the animal, it pays more respect to the animal themselves. 
which I think is a really good, positive, respectful thing to do. Yeah, I'm thinking about the average mandatory hunting course and how much is left out of it without that Dene perspective and code of ethics. And what you're talking about is a much broader view of what hunting provides from a supply chain and ecosystem viewpoint. Like the hides are tanned and used for clothing. The bones are turned into tools. The organs are far more nutritious than any supplement you can get on the shelf at the pharmacy. The possibilities are endless. So, Ange, when you first launched your business, what were the initial services that you offered and how have those evolved into what you're offering now? Um, yeah, well, as, as I said, like it, it really started with talking with Jim Welsh and doing like the hunting education and ethics development courses. I still work with environment and I still do just regular heat courses and stuff like that. But I've also been asked by many different First Nations to, to do that course. The First Nations, like they don't need like the big game hunting license on their own traditional territories. So, but what's lacking or what's missing in some, some cases and some communities is that that traditional Indigenous knowledge is not being passed on, you know, or there are gaps. And so I think there are many communities who appreciate kind of learning about these different like pieces of history or the skill building in terms of like the traditional arts or you know tool making and stuff like that for example like I went to Dawson and I, I worked with the Trondic Gwich'in and part of the the class that that I taught was like how to roast a caribou head cooking organ meats was something that they were interested in there's all kinds of different ways to like tap into traditional knowledge and what it is people are interested in. So basically I have two super large freezers full of like hides and bones and different like organ meats that I've kind of saved or like people have given to me. And I, I use those to um, help teach courses and, and um, provide for like different communities or first nations and, like one of the things I, I've been kind of working towards that I've had to put on hold a little bit was um, a cultural land-based like learning center. My my boyfriend and I, we we recently bought some land just like 30 minutes north of Whitehorse. And I wanted to devote like a, a couple acres to like develop it as kind of a venue for people to either rent for their own programming or as a space where I can teach my own workshops and, you know, in my own space. Oh, that is such a good idea. Like we started clearing the space and I, I worked with a business consulting firm, uh, Mammoth Consulting, and got together like a, a business plan and figured out like what it is exactly I'm going to need to have like a successful land-based venue. It, it was all coming together, but I ended up getting pregnant last uh last fall and so yeah yeah, it's it's awesome I'm super happy about it but like all my plans for really getting like this land-based venue off the ground this year have been kind of put on hold because I you know going on maternity leave and stuff like that you can't really have an income simultaneously and so as a woman entrepreneur like these are things that you kind of have to deal with this this doesn't really have to do with my business per se but i was a part of uh denina woe's trip to fort mcpherson there's a group of us who who worked on hides under the the direct supervision and instruction of uh, Eleanor Firth Mitchell or Mitchell Firth. Anyways, she was amazing. And uh, we camped out at her cabin at Eight Mile. We all brought our own hides to work on and she was really generous with her knowledge. And what was cool about then was there was elders who were 
like coming around and like they they were like oh wow like I haven't seen people really work on hides in a long time and you know like my mom used to work on hides or you know I worked on hides as a little girl but haven't done it in a long time what was funny was like there were some elders who were like watching us and and then we'd be like oh do you want to try it out or they're like oh no no I, I don't know how and then you hand them a knife or something and then they're just like cutting the hair off like experts and I don't know it was like unlocking like this skill or knowledge that they had that maybe they have suppressed for a while so I think that kind of like that happens when you're when you're picking up age-old skills like high tanning or tool making and stuff like that like there's elders who may have suppressed it because of residential school you know like there's a lot of shame behind uh you know, being Indigenous or having Indigenous knowledge or skills. And so to be a part of that, like reawakening or memory for people, like it, it is really special and it makes me feel good because it's like, I don't know, it seems to bring back like good memories or like, like the act of uh, revitalizing aspects of our culture or like cultural identity is just like really, really nice. It's good. Yeah, wow. I mean, that snapshot you just provided really illustrates the healing impact of the work that you're doing alongside other hide tanners. So what would you say, like as an instructor, what is your approach when working with people and sharing a new skill with them? Um, that's a good question. Like language is, is very unique to certain environments, certain territories, you know, so are the skills that come with it. And the knowledge of um, Indigenous peoples is unique to that territory. And uh, some of their methodologies are you know, they vary as well. And so it's, it's always good to have an open mind and, and not really come in acting like you're some sort of expert or something. Right. You know, like it's, it's good to, to share what you know, and just say like, you know, this is where I come from. And this is what I've learned. A lot of times, like it's pretty similar, especially across like Athapaskan communities and territories, because, you know, we're all, we're all Dene. I, I often like to uh, work with community members. Like when I go into a different place, like it's good to ask to see like if there are any elders who would like to like co-facilitate or share some of their knowledge or their stories because it's unique to where they're from. And, you know, it's good to pay that respect as well. But in terms of like teaching methodologies, like I think that it's it's always good to not assume that people know things like, you know, the impacts of colonizations really vary from territory to territory, from individual to individual. And so what they know and what they may have like suppressed or forgotten, like it's, it definitely varies. And so like, I definitely try to be sensitive to that. And so I try to have a pretty gentle approach and um, kind of lead, I guess, by example, like in sharing like my own story or like my own journey, like it's, uh, it is, it is super challenging, like due to like the impacts of colonization, we, we've lost a lot um, in terms of our, our language and culture and values and our land. And we are in a state of, of reclaiming like who we are and of revitalization. And so the concept of what is traditional is also sometimes a bit murky. Christianity, for example, has had like such a huge impact on our peoples and, you know, like the, some of like the gender roles that have been imposed through Christianity has, has really stuck with a lot of indigenous peoples and communities. And so sometimes it's, it's hard to have those discussions where, you know, you're questioning what is really traditional 
is it something that predates colonization or has it been something kind of uh, newly imposed or influenced? It's, it's sensitive and sometimes like quite controversial, but I think that it's important to talk about because honestly, like in my opinion, I think that there are some, um, some ways in which like women are not given the same opportunities or the same support that uh, men are in the North. And I would like to see that change. Like I, I've heard men tell me like, oh, you know, it's not traditional for men or women to, to hunt or to trap or something like that. And it's, I don't know, like, I, I just think that it's, that's very debatable, you know, because I, I know of like so many stories of, of women hunting and like, even um, if you look at some of our, like some of our oldest stories, like from our oral history that long predate colonization. Yeah, the stories are there, but they need to be found and then shared. One of my, my favorite uh, examples of like a strong Indigenous woman is um, from the book by J.J. Van Bibber called I Was Born Under a Spruce Tree. And he has a whole chapter devoted to his, his late wife, Clara Van Bibber, who was like a fiercely independent woman. Like she had her own job working in a, a coffee shop. She had her own fish wheel. She had her own dog team. And yeah, she was just like, she didn't really need a man. And he liked that about her. And he had to like work hard to like court her. And eventually they got together and, you know, when they had kids, like she would check the trap line while on snowshoes, like carrying a little baby on her back and stuff like that. And that time frame is probably from like the early to mid 1900s. And, you know, like just uh, hearing about these older stories of like strong, independent women who were capable hunters, capable trappers and fisherwomen and stuff like that. Like, I think that we just don't hear enough of those stories. So anyways, like for me wanting to teach women how to build their skills and confidence being out in the bush, I think it's it's empowering not just for them, but for their community. Because like, you know, when you look at the statistics of uh, gender issues within a lot of Northern communities, like indigenous women, experience a lot more like domestic violence than than men do sexual assault a lot more indigenous women are are single parents or like they're the sole caregiver of their children and if they don't have like a father or brothers or a partner to to go and hunt for them or fish or trap then they're told like oh well it's not traditional for women to do those things like then they just don't have access to that to that wild meat or wild fish and to to have the fun of being out in the bush which i think is really unfortunate because there are so many single moms out there if they feel empowered and if they feel like they have the skills and knowledge to do these things they'll pass on that knowledge to their kids and we'll just be that much more stronger and healthier as a people, as a community. I'm from Tanuli Lake, Manitoba, in northern Manitoba. I am Saisi Dene First Nation, and I am the executive director of the Seal River Watershed Alliance. We are currently Canada's largest IPCA proposal. So we, as four First Nations, are working together to create the largest IPCA in Canada, the largest protected area under our Indigenous laws. So that is the work that I do on a daily basis and then also I'm always trying to really connect and make sure that I'm practicing 
Uh, my culture uh, in all the areas of my life, if possible, no matter where I am. Amazing, Steph. I've been a Facebook friend, fan of yours for such a long time. So when I knew I had the opportunity to speak with you for this episode, I was like, yes. Do you remember the first time that you and Angela met? No, I've known her my whole life. I remember seeing her as a baby, as and I remember her as a little girl walking around the band hall with a caribou drum singing. And I remember driving dirt bikes with her in the community and four-wheelers and learning how to, how to fillet fish with her from our Auntie Sarah. And yeah, our families are really connected and close. So I were, I'm really blessed that I've been able to call them family through friendship and through our parents. I can picture Angela on a dirt bike and the sense I get is she's always happiest when she's out on the land. Yeah, absolutely. You can see it. You can feel it. It's The land is really good medicine, especially when you get to really be able to practice that in your traditional ancestral territory. It really does bring about this really beautiful energy and it really it shines on people's faces and Angela is also one of those people who just like you see it you feel it around them the energy and the 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 good vibrations are just all there and she's a really good conduit for connecting people to that good energy and that medicine of the land yeah and i know that for angela it's especially important for her to be offering those experiences to indigenous women who may not have had access to certain experiences on the land. And, and I know you feel similarly, Steph. So yeah, can you just share a little bit about why you feel that's so important and timely? It's really important to have that kind of a role model in our communities, especially in our own community. You know, it's become very patriarchal as of recently just because of colonization and because of colonial like systems like the church systems and our ancestors, the women in our families, they were strong, capable women who could hold down the fort and who could hunt for their families, who could provide for their families when their husbands were away. And Sometimes today we're made to feel like we couldn't do that if we were on our own or without a, a man there to help us. And she's really incredibly great at reminding us by example that we can do these things as women and that we've always been doing these things as women. It's really cool to see that inspiration that comes to other women who kind of question or doubt their place in our society because of that colonialism. So she's been really great at spearheading that like momentum for our community and reminding us that, you know, like, yes, we are women. And yes, typically as of late, it's been the men going out and harvesting and hunting for their families, but it can be us too. And, and there's no reason why we can't be doing this work as well, because we are strong, you know, we are capable, we are bringing life into this world, we can also provide food for ourselves if we need to and if we want to. Yeah. And I think people like you and Angela and so many other Indigenous women and non-binary folks are making space for that new generation to step into their power. And it's amazing to see. Yeah, it really is. It's a really beautiful place to be able to sit and and have people think of you not only as just like oh she stays at home and she has to take care of things at home right and and then you have these new generation of people going well no people like Ange or people like Steph they'll go out on the land and they'll go harvest or they'll go do these things we need to set aside this fuel for them because they're going to want to go too or they're going to want to you know and and they're saying like, oh, you did a really great job out there. And it's imp it's inspiring even more people. As I continue to do this work, I see that there's a lot of people who don't have that option. And 
connecting with the land is one of the ways of being able to realize and see who you are, even with the blood memory that exists in our in our bodies and in our veins and, and in our histories. And it, it it has a beautiful way of just showing itself and coming out and, and existing through your own hands. There's no doubt that I love being Dene and like I love so many aspects of our culture, but I just believe that there's room for improvement when it comes to gender equality. And, you know, if we harness people's abilities and interests more so than gender roles, I think that we would have a much more like robust economy, like interesting culture. Our communities would feel more empowered and flourish like as a whole. But yeah, that's, that's my opinion. I think you're bang on, Ange, and I really appreciate how you approach these conversations, both with conviction and with curiosity. And I think this is something that each generation does, like asking the older generation, where do these ideas come from? And is this really just fundamentally how it is, or are we keeping ourselves trapped in a patriarchal system that is out of balance. But there are ways to have these conversations effectively, which I think you do really well, and you know, respectfully acknowledging that these are deep-seated ideas. And fortunately, you have this knowledge uh, that allows you to make a really strong case for gender advocacy being good for the economy and good for the overall health of communities. So my last question for you is, where do you see the future of Dene Chanier? And where do you want to take your business? Yeah, well, my next goal is, is um, just developing that couple acres on my land to develop a, a venue, like a land-based learning center type venue in the Whitehorse area. And I do want to do it kind of in steps because sometimes I can think a little bit too big and maybe it's too far of a stepping stone. But I think if things where I can kind of start small and like have week long high tanning camps or a day use camp for people to come and utilize and like a space where I can conduct workshops and also rent it out for people who just need a, an outside venue. Maybe they want to have their, their board meeting in a more land-based kind of space than like a stuffy conference room or something like that. And then maybe I could do Airbnb or renting it out that way or... Weddings. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Weddings could be another good thing because there's a lot of like beautiful views on my property as well. Like with the mountains in the background and yeah, there's a lot of space here and yeah, there could be like photo shoots or, you know, maybe down the line, it'd be great to have uh, cabins perhaps, but I think it's good to have the small and the big goals and just work towards it. And, you know, because of this new, new trajectory that I'm on, you know, being pregnant, like with my first child, it's, um, you know, it's given me, it's, it's made me think a lot about uh, my future and also like my child's future. And, you know, the thought of me having a little girl at first, like really kind of like scared me, I think. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's part of what got me questioning like my own thoughts about gender dynamics within Dene culture and like why why I would think that for everything that like I've been able to accomplish and I, I almost had to like to fight for it and advocate for myself and I think it's just easier like to be a, a male not only in like the context of the north but in the world and so it does kind of make me feel a bit more motivated to 
implement that more into my work and uh, career goals is just like raising boys to be good advocates for their fellow sisters and opening up space that may not have been like open to them before and for the girls to to be strong independent women and to be proud to be female and to not lower themselves or like kind of suppress themselves like just to accommodate others like I I just yeah I think that that's an important issue for me and moving forward like I'll I'll take that into my business as well and um just like figuring out how to do it in a good way. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. So spoiler alert, we recorded Angela's interview before she gave birth and she now has the sweetest little baby boy. He's so cute. And I loved what she said about motherhood in her interview and how it's really supporting the evolution of her business and how she thinks about the impact that she wants to be having in the world. So go follow Dene Chanier on Instagram and Facebook, and we will drop those links in the show notes. Uh, Also, I have been out to Angela's place where she lives with her partner and little baby just outside of Whitehorse. And I can confirm that it is as scenic of a location as they come. So I'm really excited to see what she decides to do with it when she's ready to come back to work. Venture Out is a production of Entrepreneurth. Our co-producer is Travis Mercredi. Our assistant editor and researcher is Jess Duncan. And our theme song is called Fires Across the Tundra by Leela Gilday. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to Venture Out and give us a five-star rating and be sure to share your favorite episode with a friend. We would love to hear from you, so reach out through Entrepreneur's Instagram or Facebook. See you next time.